So I apologize, I am going to be coughing here and there throughout the morning. I've had a cough for about a month, give or take. But deal with it. All right. So last Sunday, our guest speaker, Noah Lang, he talked to us about the authority of Jesus. There were some significant and even complex theological categories that he brought up. Categories that I believe he did an excellent job defining and unpacking for us. And while those discussions are never easy, they're worth it, they're important, but they're not easy. He did make them accessible. So I would encourage you to go back and give that sermon a re-listen because the things he spoke about are massively important, especially to our understanding um, of the Trinitarian God that we worship. But what I appreciated most about last Sunday is that the theology wasn't the point, <coughs> but rather the theology served the point. That Jesus is the end game. He is the center of everything we believe and cling to as his followers. And the reason why he is the center of everything we believe and cling to is because he is God. He is God. Throughout the course of this gospel, John has gone to great lengths to articulate this reality. In John chapter 1, Jesus is identified as the word who was with God <coughs> and the word who was God. He's described as the one through whom all things were made. He's the creator. In John 1, verses 29 and 36, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, a work reserved for God and God alone. In John 2, Jesus creates wine where there were no grapes, no sugars to ferment. Jesus creates something from nothing. Creation ex nihilo. <coughs> I apologize. This is going to be annoying, isn't it? I have one, and it wasn't working, so we'll make it. In John 4.26, we're just going to go roll with it here. In John 4.26, after a lengthy and eye-opening conversation with the Samaritan woman, he concludes with two words, ego a me, that's Greek for I am. And as we saw last week in John 5.18 through 47, Jesus is equal with the Father. This Sunday, as we look at what has been described by some as the fifth sign in John's gospel, we will again be reminded of who this Jesus is. The difference, though, is that while the religious leaders of chapter 5 sought to kill Jesus because of his claims that God was his father, the response to Jesus' revelation in chapter 6 are a little bit different. Jesus' signs, as we've discussed throughout the course of the series, they're meant to point beyond themselves to reveal the reality of both the kingdom and the king. And while this crowd is catching a part of that story, they simply misunderstand the sort of kingdom and king that is on offer. <clears throat> a misunderstanding that has plagued Jesus' followers for over 2,000 years. And so my hope is that in seeing their failure we might move forward more faithfully, right? As Winston Churchill wrote, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. 
And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6. Now what we're about to look at is one of my worst nightmares. The fear of not having enough food for people is a tradition that has been passed down in Italian-American generations, families for generations and generations. So I can relate to Philip's concern, but there's more here. So let's take a look. It says this. After Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So it starts out like this, the phrase after this. That's a vague phrase. Um, it's probably been a bit of time since chapter 5. If the Feast of the Jews of chapter 5, verse 1, refers to the Passover, then it's been a year. But if it's one of the fall feasts, we're looking at about six months. Either way, some time has passed. Now, it says that Jesus is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We know he's near Bethsaida because Luke's gospel tells us that, which puts him on the northeast side of the sea. And actually, lake is a better way to understand what we're looking at because the sea or the lake is about seven miles across at its widest. So this isn't an ocean, all right? It's a large body of water, but it's not large enough to be called an ocean. And in our you know, vernacular, it's not really large enough to call a sea. Verse 2 tells us that a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. In other words, we're dropping in on the height of Jesus' popularity. For the last six months to a year, Jesus has been healing the sick and word was spreading about his ministry. That large crowd... <coughs> We'll learn in just a few minutes, if we include women and children, is somewhere between 10 to 20,000 people deep. So the Blue Claw Stadium holds about 6,500, while Madison Square Garden holds a little over 20,000, and last night, 20,000 very sad fans. Um, so somewhere in between that, a couple happy ones in this room. Um, and typical to what we've seen throughout our time, the people still don't understand the point of the signs. They don't get it. They think the signs are the reason they're there. Let's keep reading. Verses 3 through 9. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for, such, for, for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? A couple things, right? Verses 3 and 5 seem to indicate that Jesus might not have been aware that this large group of people were, were behind him, but that's not really the point. The text says that when he lifts up his eyes and sees the crowd, he asks one of the twelve a question. Where are we going to buy bread so that these people can eat? <coughs> now, Philip was a local guy. So if there was a way to get food, he would have been the guy who would have known. But that's not why Jesus asks him. Jesus has a very clear purpose in asking Philip where they can get some food. It was, as the text says, to test him. So there is a seemingly insurmountable problem that they are staring at from the top of this mountain, and Jesus puts the ball in Philip's court. Now, Philip has been traveling with Jesus for a while. 
He was there when he turned water into wine, and he probably saw all the same signs that he was doing on the sick that drew this crowd they were all looking at. And so Philip says, even if we had eight months' wages, we couldn't buy enough for these people. And now Philip, after seeing so much, he still doesn't see. To quote my favorite scientist, Dr. Emmett Brown, from Back to the Future, you're just not thinking fourth dimensionally. To which Marty McFly responds, right, right, I have a real problem with that. Now before we jump on Philip's case, how often do we experience these same memory lapses? How often do we forget that God has met us in the valley of the shadow of death? And while this story does not guarantee this is really important. This story does not guarantee that God will always provide for the needs of the saints, as there are many brothers and sisters throughout the world who go without on a daily basis. It serves as a reminder that the same God who walked with us then walks with us today and will continue to walk with us. But there's even more to it than that. After Philip fails the test, another one of the 12, Andrew, speaks up. He says, there's a, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, at first glance, maybe Andrew's response is promising. Maybe he's about to pass the test. Maybe he remembers how Jesus has worked in the past. Maybe he's thinking fourth dimensionally. He's not. Notice what he says. But what are they for so many? Now, to give a little bit of context, barley loaves were typically eaten by lower-class people, described by the Jewish historian Josephus as too vile for man's consumption. They were small loaves, and there were only five of them and only two fish. The point is that both Philip and Andrew, two individuals who have been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry, they still don't know who their rabbi is. They still don't know who their rabbi is. And this speaks a little bit to what Noah was getting at last week, that the Jesus who calls us friend, he is also Lord. And while Philip and Andrew held Jesus in the highest regard, they still weren't fully wrapping their minds around who he was. And that's a question we all need to wrestle with as followers of Jesus. Do we know who our rabbi is? Do we know who this Jesus is? And the only way for us to fully wrap our minds around that is, is, to, is to study what he's shown us to, for himself to be in the text. He reveals himself to us. Are we allowing ourselves to have the eyes to see who this Jesus is? The text continues, verse 10. It says, Jesus said, <coughs> have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten them. What's going on? couple of things that I noticed as I was working through this. Jesus gives the 12 a job. Have the people sit down. In both Luke and Mark, the apostles are instructed to seat them in groups of 50 and 100. 
In John, it says that Jesus distributed the food, whereas in the other accounts, the food was distributed by the disciples. Most scholars agree that John is simply abbreviating the story. We don't need to get into this whole conversation of, look, the Bible's not true because there's an inconsistency. No, just stylistic differences in how the story is being conveyed. But the point is that the people ate as much as they wanted. Now, there's a couple things going on here. Notice how Jesus enlists his disciples in the work being done. He enlists his disciples in the work being done. This is how the king manages his kingdom. So important. He calls us to participate in the work, to share together in the life of Christ. This is what faith or faithfulness is. It's participation. I'm reminded of Paul's letter to the Romans, this this masterpiece about how God saves his people by his grace. But then he says this strange thing in chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And and how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? See, God does the saving, but he uses our lips to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And as we see in the feeding of the 5,000, he uses our hands and feet to love those who are in physical need. He enlists us in his project. Yes, tracking with that? You catch that? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And guess who are the ones who bring about the word? It's us. He enlists us. Second thing, which is really important, God cares about physical needs. You guys catching that? They're hungry. They're poor. Those who have been cast aside. And and this is really interesting, too, because just a chapter before it said that the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So therefore, this feeding of the 5,000 means that caring for the physical needs of the hungry and the poor is a Trinitarian endeavor. That God not only entrusts to us, but demands of us. And so what Jesus reveals is the heart of the Trinity. The heart of the Trinity, the heart and will of the Trinity is to love others by demonstrating that physical love towards them. Caring for needs. God cares about that. Do we see that in the text? Do we understand that that's kind of what's bubbling up here? Our main point this morning states that the feeding of the 5,000 further reveals who Jesus is. Now, we're going to dig in that in just a few minutes, but a surface reading reveals that Jesus is at least a man who cares about and draws near to a poor boy who, in faith, gave away the small lunch he had because he saw a crowd of hungry people, right, to have the faith of a child. Now, there's an entire sermon there, if we had the time, but let's at least grab this truth. This poor boy seems to understand more about Jesus than his own apostles. Now, before we move forward, I want to point out a few things, important stuff. John places this story right after Jesus' dispute with the religious leaders, where he concludes at the end of chapter 5, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. So we're walking into this story with Moses on the mind. And if we have Moses on the mind, what else might we have on our brains? The Exodus. So we have Moses on the mind, we have Exodus on the mind, we glossed over it, but in verse 4, John casually says that the Passover, 
The feast of the Jews was at hand. Now the Passover commemorates the redemption story of the Hebrew Bible. When God, through Moses, freed the people from slavery. So we have Moses on the mind. We have the Exodus on the mind. And we have Passover and God's redemption on our minds as we are entering into this story. And you know where this story takes place? Where Jesus encounters this large crowd? Well, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's a desolate place. And that's the exact same language that the Greek Old Testament uses to refer to the wilderness throughout the Exodus narratives. And so now we have Moses on the mind, we have the Exodus on the mind, we have Passover on the mind, and we have the wilderness on our minds. And similar to Israel in the wilderness wanderings of the Old Testament, we're looking at a crowd of hungry people. And in Exodus 16, it says that Yahweh rained down bread from heaven. In John 6, heaven comes down and generously provides bread for the people of God. What's the point? Why do I bring all that up? Jesus is simply doing what he does, which flows from who he is. And who he is is the same God who rescued, fed, and sustained his people for 40 years in the wilderness. And so what is unfolding before us is none other than a new and, dare I say, better exodus, better redemption, better salvation. It's tracking Let's keep going here. What's, what's going on here? Verses 14 through 15. But before we get there, this idea of a better exodus. All this is on our minds as we're entering into the story. If we're careful readers, this is what's on our brains. And this idea of a new and better exodus, guess what? That was also on the people's brain as well. They saw the connections. They understood it but they weren't fully connecting the dots, right? To harmonize a bit, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus had just finished teaching through a series of parables on the kingdom of God before he fed the crowd. So kingdom is probably on their minds, along with Moses and the Exodus and Passover. And so their natural response as a group of Israelites with this entire history behind them is, let's go. Let's do it. The text says that when the people saw the sign, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they are rightly remembering the words from Deuteronomy 18 that Moses spoke, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. But they are wrongly understanding his role. They're wrongly understanding his role. We talked about this on Palm Sunday that the crowds were celebrating the arrival of their king because they were longing for revolution, but Jesus was there to fight an entirely different enemy. Look at what it says in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were able to come, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew <coughs> again to the mountain by himself. This whole take him by force language it's really violent. It has beast-like connotation. It's sometimes used in the Greek Old Testament to describe a lion tearing apart its prey. So this should paint a picture of the crowd's posture. Think Braveheart as William Wallace's army was amping themselves up for battle. 
There are 5,000 men sitting here with their families who have had enough of, enough of life living under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire, and they're ready for war. That's what we're looking at. And it just gets amped up on Palm Sunday, but that's what we're looking at here. But that's not why God stepped into creation. At least not at this point in redemptive history. With this crowd of people who were justified in their anger toward Rome. Like, we need to actually like, sit there for a second. They're justified in their anger toward Rome. It's perfectly, it makes perfect sense that they're not happy with their station in life. And so too many of us might be equally justified in our frustration about the world that we're currently living in. It makes sense. It makes sense to be overwhelmed by the things we see on the news. But God stepped into creation to deal with something bigger than that. Because there was a slave driver and oppressor far more powerful and dangerous than any earthly empire that has walked the earth. Namely, the powers and the authorities, death and our own sin that enslaves and chains us to the first two. And that's why Jesus came, to deal with the root of the problem, to deal with all that is underneath the surface. But we're not much different than the crowd. And I don't simply mean the world out there. The church here in America and all over the world throughout history has struggled with this same sort of stuff. We too are looking for temporal security, earthly power, comfort, ease. We don't want our way of life to be disrupted. And while none of those desires are inherently bad, it's not why Jesus came. And it's not the mission of the church. And what ends up happening when we fix our eyes on those things, we, come, we become blind to the deeper needs of ourselves and the world around us. The need to be freed from sin, to experience the presence of God, and to walk in love, showing the world what God is like. And, and what I would argue is that when we, when we start to understand this more fully, and we start to look at the world around us, struggling with and celebrating and condoning evil, what should start to happen as we, we fully understand the gospel and even our own salvation is that our hearts should start to break. That we would no longer seethe in anger, but that our hearts would break. That compassion would start to bubble up. That our memories would, would, be, would be rattled a bit because we would remember where we came from, sinners saved by grace. See, that's what God is trying to do in his people. He's trying to show us who he is so that we understand what we are, how we are to live in light of who he is. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes says it like this, and I have a slide for this. Here, Jesus' evasive action is not a rejection of the title king, but an escape from the crowd's ill-tempered, ill-timed attempt to force his hand and crown him as their ruler on the basis of a deficient comprehension of his identity and his mission. And that is precisely what we, the body of Christ, both individually and corporately, need to embody. Both the identity 
and the mission of Jesus. It's the Philippians 2 stuff that we talk about nearly every single week. To have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking on the form of a slave, being found in human form, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the mind, that's the master story that needs to inform every single bit of who we are individually and corporately. The humility of Christ, the self-giving nature of God. And the people that just got fed, they didn't get that yet. They didn't get it yet. And they certainly didn't get it on Palm Sunday when he entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. Oh, there's such a higher calling for us, Redeemer. Something far more important. The text tells us that our battle is not with flesh and blood. It is a spiritual war. And so we got to fight that temptation to go to battle every time we feel the flesh creeping up. I experienced that recently. And I experienced that I liked that feeling of, of being able to go to war a little bit and borrow, you know, no, no, the enemy's weapons. And that's what we do. We borrow the enemy's weapons to do the work of God. And we have to be so careful. We have to be so careful. Right? There's a reason why, why the prophets talk about in, 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 in the age to come that, that weapons will be turned into to gardening tools. There's a reason why the prophets talk like that. Because that's the vision of the new humanity. And, and if we believe that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, that we are living in an already, not yet, state where we are participating in thy kingdom come, if we believe that to be true, then the weapons we use to fight this war, they need to come from, from, from the arsenal of our king, not the arsenal of the enemy. Weapons of love, weapons of compassion, weapons of grace, weapons of mercy, weapons of kindness. That's what God's calling us toward. Humility. It's I mean, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, the master story that Paul lays out for us. It is all over the New Testament. Jesus says, love your neighbor. I don't know how to do that. Not love your enemy, excuse me. Even love your neighbor's heart sometimes, right? <laughs> we, we struggle with this. We struggle with this because we live in a world marred by sin. And we too are saints who speak with the accent of a sinner. But God is shaping us, reforming us, renewing our minds. Continually pouring out his spirit upon the church. Reviving us. Showing us exactly what it is that we need to be doing. Who it is that we need to be pursuing. And how we need to posture ourselves in this world. Now the text says that Jesus withdrew to be alone. Interesting thing about John's gospel is there's no temptation narrative. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. There's no temptation narrative in John's gospel. But in this story, as Jesus is staring out over a sea of people ready to fight on his behalf, 
My sanctified imagination has me thinking that maybe he's hearing the words of the enemy from his 40 days in the desert. All the kingdoms of this world I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. All he had to do was reach out and grab it. These men were ready to go to war for him. He could have taken out the most powerful empire in the world, and it would have done a lot of good. But for Jesus, equality with God was not something to be grasped. And so instead, he withdraws. He retreats to be by himself. And the place that by himself typically refers to is where he enjoys fellowship with the Father. Again, we're seeing that Jesus' Jesus understanding of kingship and authority is very different from his followers. And this difference further reveals who he is and also who the Father is. But even that little, little phrase, he withdraws or he, he, with, he retreats, it, it, the language is, has some battle connotations to it. He retreats. And, and, and more often than not, when he retreats and he's alone, particularly on a mountain, he is in prayer. He is with the Father. That's what the New Testament is always talking about. And so even here, we can kind of learn a little bit <coughs> about how we might deal with our own sin and temptation. That when we feel that, that, that urge to, to borrow the weapons from the world or to borrow the weapons from the enemy, that, that we too need to retreat and go be with the Father. We too need to withdraw and be with the Father. When temptation starts to rear its head, that way out that the the scriptures talk about is go be with the Father. Go take a minute, step back. Allow the Spirit of God to to, to work on you. Because guess what, right? And we're way off script, but I think it's okay. Um, Every time you are experiencing some sort of temptation, is there not always that second or even half a second where you know I got to stop. I got to not step forward. And it's that half a second that, that, that God is inviting you to withdraw and be in his presence, even if it's just for 10 seconds, to recalibrate your mind, to allow God to renew your mind so you can enter into that space of enemy territory, not using their weapons to defeat them. Withdraw, retreat. Take a page out of Jesus' book. The scene then shifts when evening came. It says in verse 16, His disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them yet. Now, becoming familiar with John's style... Over the last number of weeks, we know that every word matters, right? There's meaning beneath meaning. Notice that it was evening. It was dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, darkness has been a common theme (coughs) throughout John's gospel, associated with spiritual blindness and a lack of understanding. Maybe even the 12 have not yet fully grasped who this Jesus was and what he was bringing into the world. Leslie Newbigin argues that what was more violent than the storm was their doubts and perplexities. We talked about this earlier. These guys have been with him since the beginning. But how long have many of us in this room been walking with Jesus? 
How many times have we been on the receiving end of his grace, cared for by the hands and feet of Jesus through the generosity and compassion of his people? And how many times have we still forgotten, still ran after worldly displays of power, put our hopes in political promises of peace, security, comfort, a particular way of life? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? It's because we forget or misunderstand who the king is and what sort of kingdom he is ushering into the world. And so we need to be reminded. And the Holy Spirit is kind enough to do that for us. He does that as we prayerfully read through his word. He does that when we submit ourselves to one another in the community of faith. When we allow our brothers and sisters to speak into our lives, we are reminded of who he is and what he's doing. And and you know what else we're reminded of? We're reminded of who we are. Because that's a big part of this. It's not just about who he is and what he's doing, but it's about what he's done in and through us. What he has formed us into and is forming us into. I know we talk about this pretty regularly, this idea of of when when we are saved, when we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we're brought into union with Christ. We're given a new identity. We're given a new name. The Bible says that we're adopted into a family. And so so not only does prayerfully studying this book and entrusting ourselves and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ teach us about who God is and what he's doing, but it also reminds us of who we are. We are children of God, purchased with the precious blood of Jesus adopted into his family, forgiven, saved, glorified, even at this present moment in the heavenly places, the Bible says we are glorified. We have to remember this. We have to remind ourselves of this. And and the more we understand who God is, the more we're gonna understand who we are because the more we understand about God because of our union with Jesus, It reveals who we are in our saintliness, in our saintliness. I'm off track here, but I think that's okay. Text continues, verse 18. It says, the sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw (coughs) Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So for a storm to quickly arise is not uncommon in a place like the Sea of Galilee. The the geography lends itself to this. I'm not going to get into why, but just that's what every book I read said. Now the fact that they were rowing for about three to four miles means they were probably out there for a bit. And then out of nowhere, the text says they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were afraid. I mean, that makes sense, right, that they were afraid? We don't typically see men walking on water, maybe wading through the water, maybe swimming, but walking on the water. This is a miraculous event. That's happening. 
Jesus is literally walking on water. Before we dig into all the reasons, um, all the places that this sign points to, this miracle points to, we need to believe that. Like, do you believe that Jesus literally walked on the water as though he was walking on the ground? That's massively important. Massively important. Why? Well, let's, let's dig at it a little bit. First of all, an event like this coming right after the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness, it should remind us immediately of Yahweh leading the Israelites through the Red Sea. This is what theologians refer to as an echo. It's not like super like specific, but, but it reminds us. It's like, oh, this sounds like something. But even more profound, there are numerous passages throughout the Old Testament, and in particular in the Psalms, where Yahweh exercises authority over the waters. But one passage stands out in the book of Job in chapter 9. Job is responding to one of his friends, and he begins to speak about God. And he says in the Greek version of the Old Testament, <coughs> in chapter 9, verse 8, verse 8, he alone stretched out the, co- the sky. He walked on the sea as on dry ground. He walked on the sea. The language is identical to what we're reading right here. And what's important even just for our categories, the sea was the source of everything the ancient world perceived as evil and wicked. And this man has authority over it, so much so that he walks on it. What's the point? Jesus wants his closest followers to know who he is and what he's doing. He is God, and he is here to deliver them. This is the new and better Exodus. And if they were confused even a little bit, he says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Translated literally, I am. I am. Do not be afraid. We need to hear what's happening. Jesus, through both his actions and now his speech, is identifying himself as Yahweh. And John is in no way disagreeing. By alluding to the book of Job, John is identifying Jesus once again as the creator. And not only is he being identified as the creator, but the Exodus backdrop identifies him as the redeemer. So we have Yahweh who creates and redeems. And that's the whole point. It's why John wrote the book that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. This new and better exodus is new and better because God is not delivering his people from a temporal oppressor, but rather an eternal one. He is digging out the root of evil, and that's the entire point, Redeemer. Jesus is God, and he came to deliver us from our sin. And every single part of his earthly ministry points toward that as he time after time denies himself revealing to us who God truly is until the moment when he completely submits himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so if you're wondering, this is good news. This is good news. And similar to what Noah preached on last week, 
what we'll learn again and what we need to remember and be reminded of regularly is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And he came to redeem and deliver us through the blood of his cross. And in redeeming and delivering us in the way he does, because sometimes the medium is the message, he is also revealing to us the sort of God he is. A God who gives of himself so that others might go free. Who is our rabbi? He's the one who cares for the physical needs of his people by feeding them in the wilderness. He's the one who eases the emotional turmoil of his friends when he settled their fears on the Sea of Galilee. But most importantly, Redeemer Fellowship. He is the one who brings us into fellowship with the Father by spreading his arms on the cross of Calvary so that we might be forgiven of our sins and adopted into the family of God. This is good news. This is why we gather every Sunday. This is why we love and serve the needs of those around us. This is why we can walk in love and hope even when the troubles and brokenness of this world feel as though they are spiraling out of control. It was spiraling out of control for the Israelites living under the oppressive thumb of Roman rule. It was spiraling out of control. And many of us in this room probably feel as though the world is spiraling out of control. But Deanna reminded me about this the other day, and I want to remind all of you. Jesus told us that in the world we would have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. I have overcome the world. I don't know why that's choking me up, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Whatever it is, whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever fears that you are allowing to just overwhelm you at this moment, take heart. Jesus, the Son of God, Yahweh himself, has overcome the world. And one day, all of that will be fully realized and we will be in his presence face to face for all of eternity. And in the same way heaven came down and fed that group, that large crowd, heaven's coming back down again. And it's going to re- and he's going to renew every single bit of this broken creation. Every single bit of it. And everything we read in the story of Jesus throughout the Gospels are just giving us a foretaste of that. It said it was a grassy place that they sat down on. That should remind us and excite us for the new creation that's coming. That in the midst of the wilderness, there was a grassy place that they sat down on. That's our story right now, Redeemer. In our wilderness wanderings, until the time Jesus returns, let us be, by the power of his spirit, that grassy place for the world to come in and get a glimpse of who God is. And then tell them what Jesus did. Tell them how their sins can also be forgiven. Be moved with compassion. Be moved with grace when you see the brokenness of this world. 
fight the temptation to seethe with anger. It's tempting. And it even feels good sometimes, right? Feels good to put down our enemies and to, to get them backed into a corner. But those are the weapons of the enemy. Allow ourselves to be trained in righteousness, holiness, and love. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we really do love you. And I think it's really hard to follow you. Because we've been so well-schooled in the pattern of this world. But Father, your word says that by your spirit, our minds are being renewed daily. But it also tells us in your word to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So I know we participate in that. So help us, Lord. Help us to submit ourselves to you. Whatever it is that we're wrestling with. Even this morning, whatever it is that we're going through. Whatever we're holding on to, Father. I pray we lay it down at your feet. At the cross. And allow your spirit to renew us and form us both individually and corporately into a picture of your son Jesus that people look at and are blown away by. Help us, Lord. I beg that of you. Revive this church. Pour your spirit out and breathe life into this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.